Good morning, Maranatha. We're glad you're here today. Hey, uh, if you have any questions or anything, you can contact us on our email address, but for now, we're glad that you are here. And we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And there's one main theme that runs through the entire book of John, and that theme is best expressed in John chapter 20, where John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. And we're going to see that same theme woven in our passage of Scripture today, as will be in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 52. And for those of you who like outlines, I've divided this passage of Scripture into three sections. The first section is verse 37, it's Jesus' offer. The second section is verse 38 and 39, it's Jesus' promise. And the last section is verse 40 through 52, it's the crowd's reaction to Jesus. So let's start out by reading our passage of Scripture today in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 52. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, who those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely... This man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guard replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own numbers, asked, Does their law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that in these uncertain times, Lord, that you are certain, that you are sure, that you are sovereign over all creation, Lord. And we know that we can trust in you and and have peace in your promise, Lord. We ask that you would bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage of Scripture, we find Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple on the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's six months before his death on the cross. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of seven annual feasts that were celebrated by the Jewish faithful. There was four feasts that were celebrated in the springtime, and there was three that were celebrated in the fall. And the Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called the Feast of Booths, was one of three pilgrimage feasts. And what that means is that if you live within a certain circumference of Jerusalem and you were a practicing Jew, you would make it your aim to travel down to Jerusalem to attend the feast. 
And there would have been tens and tens of thousands of people who have attended the feast every year. Some believe as many as 100,000 people. Perhaps as many as it would attend an OSU football game on Saturday in the fall. And the Feast of Tabernacles was instituted by God and recorded in Leviticus 23. And one of the reasons for the feast was to look back to the time when their forefathers were traveling in the wilderness from Egypt, where they were slaves, to the Promised Land. And how they celebrated God's faithfulness in supplying provisions for and His presence with the people as they traveled in the wilderness. So in commemoration of this event, those who attended the feast would build these uh, temporary shelters or booths out of uh, tree branches, and they would camp outside for the whole week, mimicking the kind of conditions their forefathers would experience as they were camping in the wilderness. And, is it, it, and it is at this great feast of tabernacles on the very last day that Jesus stands up before the crowd and offers them the divine provisions of God. He offers them living water, which is an analogy for soul-satisfying, life-giving, eternal life. And in verse 37, he says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He offers to everyone who attended the feast. And there was no preconditions. You didn't have to be a religious elite, elite or morally superior the only condition was that as you understand your thirst and you come to Jesus and drink. And Jesus is not making this offer in a vacuum. But we hear, here we see Jesus as the master in ministering within the context of the environment in which he finds himself. He meets people where they are. And Jesus uses the conditions and the events around him, uh, his hearers to teach them about spiritual realities. We see him do this in John chapter 2, where he removes the money changers from the temple, and then he uses that event to teach the spiritual reality that he is the true temple. We see it in chapter 6 of John, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then uses that event to teach the spiritual reality that he is the bread of life. And we're going to see that in our passage of Scripture today. As we study, uh, Jesus once again meets people where they are and uses it to teach spiritual realities. Because when Jesus gives the invitation to anyone who is thirsty to come to him and drink, what would have been fresh in the minds of the crowd would have been the subject of water. Because there was a celebration, that was a ceremony that was celebrated every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was called the water-drawing ceremony. And in this ceremony, the, the priest would have gotten this golden jug, and he would have led a procession out of the temple area, down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would have dipped the golden jug into the Pool of Siloam and filled it with water, and then he would have led the procession back into the temple area, and he would have stood before the altar of sacrifice. And all the people would have gathered around them. There have been thousands and thousands of people. And the priest would have lifted the jar over his head and he would have poured it out of the base of the tabernacle. And when he did this, the people together would recite Isaiah 12.3, which says, With joy 
we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this water drawing ceremony looked back to the time when the, their forefathers were in the wilderness in Exodus 17 and how they were thirsty and they had nothing to drink and how God provided water from the, the rock to quench their, their thirst and, and, and supply their physical life. And, and uh, this is the environment when Jesus stands up and he yells to the crowd, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the implications here are, just as God provided their forefathers water from the rock to quench their thirst and sustain their physical life, so Jesus offers here in verse 37, living water to provide for their spiritual life. And this isn't the first time that we see Jesus offering living water. We see it in John chapter 4, where Jesus is going from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and he goes through Samaria, and he stops at the town of Sychar, and he's resting by the well of Jacob. And along comes this Samaritan woman, and she comes to get water from the well, and Jesus engages her in a conversation. We find out that this woman had lived a messed up life, so much so that even the town peoples ostracized her. And Jesus engages her, and he offers her this living water, and she accepts it, she accepts it and her life is changed forever. And we see in the Gospels that those who are marginalized and those who are ostracized were particularly attracted to the offers of God. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, the habitually sinful, and they were attracted to Jesus' offer of living water, of soul-satisfying, life-giving, eternal life. And they, they were attracted to it for two reasons. One, they understood the crushing weight of their own sin. And in case they had forgotten, those who lived in the town where they were living would have reminded them. And they also understood their need for salvation outside of themselves. They had no illusions in their minds that somehow the way they had lived their lives merit any consideration of acceptance by God. But as Jesus offers this living water to the crowd, in John chapter 9, at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, his offer was largely rejected. Some had accepted, but most had rejected. And most antagonistic to Jesus' offer were the Jewish leaders. They should have been at the very front of the line to accept the offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But instead, they were at the front of the line to reject Jesus' offer. The Jewish leaders thought they were already in good standing before God because they trusted in their own effort instead of the free offer of Jesus. They had put their trust in their own adherence of the law, and their thirst was veiled. They didn't recognize that they were thirsty, and it was veiled because of their own self-righteous religiosity. But there were some who had accepted the offer of living water, and to them, Jesus makes the promises in verse 38 and 39. And what he offers is the divine presence of God in their lives. 
He says in verse 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had been, not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus here is talking to the people about a more intimate manifestation of God's presence in a believer's life. He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't as if God wasn't active in, in Old Testament believers' lives. He was. And we see that in the book of Exodus, where Jesus, as the people were in, traveling in the wilderness, led them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And when it was time for the people to rest, the Levites would, would assemble this uh, mobile tabernacle, and all the people would come, and they would camp around the tabernacle. And this tabernacle would be in the middle, and there would have been, with women and children, probably three to four million people all camped around the tabernacle. And God's Shekinah glory came and rested on the tabernacle. And the implication here is that when the people were in the wilderness, God dwelt with those people. He, he dwelt with them. But now, Jesus is saying, not only will he dwell with his people as he did in the, in the wilderness, now he will dwell in his people. And we see this promise clearly stated in John sixteen seven, where Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And we see this promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes, and those that were believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. And this indwelling of the Holy Spirit participated not only the infancy of the church, but also the explosion of the church. And we see that 3,000 people that day were saved. And shortly after that, another 4,000 were saved. And we see the explosion of the church to this very day as many millions accept Jesus' offer of living water every year. So then, how does the Holy Spirit work in our lives today? We see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead working in three ways in our lives today. Because when we take of, partake of Christ, the Holy Spirit flows to us, it flows through us, and it flows out of us. First of all, it flows to us. It changes our standing before God, and we are, pers- we are positionally sanctified. We're regenerated. We stand righteous, redeemed, justified, reconciled, and adopted by God. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we might become the sons of God. But not only does it flow to us, it flows through us. It transforms our inward person, and we are practically sanctified. We are changed by the Spirit of God working in us. And then finally, it flows out of us. We become a fountain that impacts the world. The Holy Spirit provides power-filled evangelism, and we become conduits of God's power working in us to impact others. Acts 1.8 says it this way, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, 
and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and unto the othermost parts of the world. So we see Jesus' offer of eternal life. We see Jesus' promise of the indwelling of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to look at the crowd's reaction. We'll be in verse 40 through 52. And we see the reaction of the crowd to Jesus and his invitation. And there are four responses to Jesus. There's the convinced, there's the confused, there's the conflicted, and there's the contentious. Let's first look at the convinced. Verse 40 and 41a says, On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others say, He is the Messiah. Now, I don't want you to be confused here. When it says, surely this man is the prophet, the people aren't saying, oh, this is a prophet like Elijah or like Isaiah or like Jeremiah. That's not what it's, the meaning is here. What they're uh, saying is he is the prophet. And this is a messianic reference. The prophet uh, here is referred to the Messiah Jesus, and it's recorded in, in, in Deuteronomy 18.15 where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So they're saying here the same thing as those who said he's the Messiah. He is the chosen one of God. He is the one that has been promised. And then there's the confused. Verse 41b through 44. It says, still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some went to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The question that those who were confused in the crowd asked is a valid question, and they're right. And they understand the scripture does not contradict himself, contradict itself. So when they ask the question, isn't the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem? The answer to that is yes. And Micah 5.2 tells us that. And then when they ask again, isn't the Messiah supposed to be from the line of David? They're right again. And, Judah, and Jeremiah 23.5 and other places tell us that. But the reason for the confusion in the crowd, although they are right in their assessment of Scripture, they are wrong in their assessment of Jesus. And this is largely because of the willful ignorance of the Jewish leaders. Because they could have easily checked the temple records and verified that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that his mother Mary and his father Joseph were both descendants of David. But the Jewish leaders had already made up their mind about Jesus and were uninterested in pursuing the truth. You know, surveys say in our day, in the USA, that, uh, that there is typically four Bibles in every household, not including the Bibles that are available through apps or on the phone or in computers. But back in Jesus' day, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, uh, the Holy Scriptures were not even close to as readily available to the common person as it is to us today. So because the Jewish leaders were, for the most part, uninterested uninterested in shepherding their people and sharing the truth with them, the people were destroyed for lack of knowledge. No wonder Jesus pronounced judgment on them and caused them vipers. 
Then the third group of people are the conflicted. Verse 45 and 46 says, Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoken this way, the way this man does, the guard replied. These guards were Jewish Levitical guards. They were tasked by the Jewish leaders to go and arrest Jesus. And although, although the Roman authority had rule over the Jew, Jews, the Romans were uninterested in exercising that authority in the Jewish temple. So the Jewish leaders had their own police force for the temple. And when the Jewish guards encountered Jesus, there was this confliction between their vocation and their duty and the sense in their heart that Jesus was something more. And it's obvious that in their minds, they considered the possibility that the one who they were tasked to arrest could be the promised one from God, the Messiah. Then finally, we look at the contentious. In verse 47 through 49, it says, You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Not only were the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees willfully ignorant, but they were also demeaningly arrogant. And they ridiculed and demeaned those who they were supposed to be shepherds of. And, and then in verse 50 and 51, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of the, their own, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing. And we see Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who went to see Jesus by night. And he had begun a transition in his heart. He is seeing Jesus for who he is. And so Nicodemus goes and defends Jesus. And he defends him by pointing out to the Jewish leaders that they are disregarding their own law that binds them by not hearing first from the one they accuse. And when Nicodemus points this out, it makes the Pharisees mad. And they replied in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So not only were the religious leaders willfully ignorant and demeaningly arrogant, they were just wrong. Because we know from Scripture that Micah the prophet was from Galilee, and Jonah the prophet was from Galilee, and Elijah the prophet was a native of Galilee. And the prophets Hosea and Nahum may have also hailed from Galilee. But most important was their disregard for the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And their argument totally neglected that in Isaiah's prophecy about Christ's own Galilean ministry, he was said to shine as a light in the darkness in Galilee. But because of their own self-righteous religiosity, their minds were closed and their hearts were hardened to the truth. So the question for us to consider, the, the question for us is what should, we, what should be our response to Jesus' great provision to us? And here's the deal. The offer made to the, the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles 2,000 years ago was not limited to them. It was an offer made to all throughout all generations. It's an offer to us as well. 
And for those who never accepted Jesus, the question is, will you quench your spiritual thirst with the soul-satisfying, life-giving, eternal life offered by Jesus? Or will you mistakenly depend on your own self-effort as many as the Jewish leaders did? And for those who already accepted Jesus' offer, what should our response be? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Or do you not know that your temple, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, but you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Our duty and privilege as to God's great provision of eternal life is for us to glorify God with our lives. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that you have provided for us, Lord, the soul-satisfying, life-giving, eternal life, Lord, the living water, Lord, without which we could not come to you, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that you have provided that for us, Lord, and that you have removed our sin from us, Lord, and in his place, Lord, you have given us uh, eternal life, Lord, and we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.